Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. And I want to give a shout-out, of course, to our producer, Adam Karsh. We usually end the show by thanking Adam. <laughs> and then, of course, by then, nobody's listening. So oh. we, need, <laughs> we need to give Adam a shout-out right now. So <laughs> Thank thanks, you, Adam. Adam. Yeah. All right. We have some... Hot topics on this one. You know, we have a Bob Dylan interview. I'm literally <laughs> jumping up and down in the studio because I found it. But how I found it is kind of funny. Okay, I'll tell, All you. Right. I'll tell you now. I'll tell you now. Okay, go okay. ahead. So I'm going through clips on a CD that's labeled like number 49. And I know that the... That's all it says? No, yeah, it's interview clips number 49. Okay. And so I have to listen to them to figure out who the hell they are, right? Because I have no idea. And I'm listening to it and I'm going, okay, this guy's talking about the band. So he's talking about Robbie Robertson and Rick Danko and Richard Manuel and Levon Helm and Garth Hudson. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, was there another member of the band? So I'm going, because I don't recognize this guy's voice. And then all of a sudden it dawns on me, it's Bob Dylan talking. I found the Dylan interview was wrongly labeled on the wrong disc. Nice so work, instead of, So instead of being on number 49 like it should have been, it was on 47. So I've relabeled it and I'm, I was so excited. Now these clips aren't great quality audio audio wise all right content wise they're typically dylan but we'll talk about more of that in just Mm -hmm. a few minutes okay so bob dylan is coming up on this show and we're so happy to finally have him on the show welcome aboard bob all right (laughs) thank you tom we also have a 2005 chat with howard jones okay Howard Jones didn't really have many hits after the 80s, so really, we're going to take the good parts out of the 2005 interview and play the parts that are most interesting to you and I and our audience, and that is about his songs from the 80s. So it's some really great stuff there. It's not a long piece, but it's great. I leave this to you because I haven't heard it yet. Oh, it's very, very good. Oh, you'll like it. You'll like it a lot. All right, cool. Okay, and we have a special guest. You know what? I was going to keep it a secret, but let's not. So we know Jeannie Becker from mm-hmm. a lot of things. We've both worked with her over the years right. um, a long time, and a lot of people know her from fashion television, but her roots really are in radio and rock and roll, rock and roll journalism, when it wasn't even a thing. So we're going to play Jeannie, a clip that we played on our own show uh, several months ago. <laughs> and I got to tell you, it's going to be really interesting to hear how Jeannie reacts to this, because you sent me an email And I can't wait to talk to her about this in just a few minutes. You sent me an email about her and how she reacted to hearing this clip of her backstage with Rod Stewart. So this is going to be great because I already know how she feels, but I want to hear what she has to say in person about this. So there we go. So let's get started with Bob Dylan. Tom, if you're not a Bob Dylan fan, this next segment will not make you one. (laughs) (laughs) In fact... I would suggest you take the dog for a walk for about the next 10 minutes or so. Wow, we're actually throwing people out of the show this early in the show. No, you can take your headphones with you. It's okay. okay. Um, Speaking for myself, if it's Bob, I'm in. Yeah. Well, because that's how I feel. Now, I think, and there's been some reconstruction here, and we may need some corrections on this, so we're wide open, please, listeners. I think these clips come from three different interviews at three different points in his career, all relatively early. Right, okay. And as evidenced just by the youthfulness um, of his voice. Yes, I didn't even recognize him when he was talking about the band. But At ahead. first I didn't either. Yeah. Um, and you'd already told me who it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he's evasive. What? He's mocking. Not Bob. He's at times downright disinterested this in is, what's being discussed. This is Dylan? All the hallmarks of a classic Bob Dylan interview. <laughs> 
Now, it sounds like these first few clips are at a sound check, and it can be a little hard to make out at times, but it's fascinating stuff, so gather around the radio. Yeah, and lean into your podcast with your headphones. You're going to have to turn this up. Here Dylan introduces the members of the band <laughs> before they were known by that name. And at the time, they were all just hanging out in Woodstock and accompanying him on tour. Okay, Robbie Robertson plays lead guitar, and Levon Helm plays uh, drums. Richard plays the piano and Rick plays the electric bass and Garth plays the organ. I play rhythm guitar and harmonica. Where uh, did you meet these musicians to work with them? I've known them for a while. I've known Robbie. Robbie's worked with me. Robbie and Lee's been played us in Forest Hills and Hollywood Bowl. Uh, it's, uh, they, they know what I'm doing, you know, without being able to express it into words or whatever. That's funny, because there was a time when people didn't know who these guys were. Yeah. And they're the band, and they're the the legacy. You know, it's been 50 years since Music from Big Pink came out, and just the legacy of that album, and how that album is considered one of the greatest slices of Americana, but four-fifths of that band, was it four-fifths or five-sixths of that band, were from Canada. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. So... All right, now you're you're kind of broken in. You've heard yep. the first segment. <laughs> Can we continue? Okay. So his description of his career path sounds a lot more random than I think it really was. Any accounts of Dylan's early days, particularly in New York City in the early 60s, portray a guy who was smart, hungry, and extremely focused on getting ahead. Check out the Scorsese doc, No Direction Home, for what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also, it's also different. It's like uh, I used to play rock and roll when I was, uh, I used to play hard, silly rock and roll when I was 15, 14. And uh, by the time I was 17, you just couldn't make it anymore at all. Uh, unless you want to be a side man and live forever in carnivals and you know, recording studios. So I just... Uh, uh, didn't, I think I couldn't make it that way, and uh, uh, I just played the acoustic guitar, you know, and discovered uh, this thing called folk music, and, and uh, I did that for a while, and then I stopped doing that uh, and started writing the songs myself, and uh, I always wanted accompaniment, you know, but I just couldn't afford it, and I just put that out of my mind. And now when it's happened, I don't really think about it one way or the other. It's, uh, I like it more this way. Christopher, did you read his book, Chronicles? Oh, my God. I read it the day it came out. Yeah, it's excellent, even though it's very unusual. And the, and the way it's it's certainly not laid out chronologically, but it is very good. I found it just amazing and insightful. Yes. I, I Here's a guy who spent, you know, up to then like 40-odd years obfuscating and hiding from yeah. the public. And he just lays it all out there. For sure. Well, Bob, for some time now, has been on what's referred to affectionately as the never-ending tour. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The man loves the road. Mm -hmm. His opening comment here in this next segment is a little ironic in that light. Um, Please also note that he lumps Howdy Doody, President Johnson, and Steve McQueen together at one point. I don't know really how much longer I'll be playing and singing, you know, on the stage. I don't really plan to do it for the rest of my life or anything. Uh, you can find all these people that play music on the stage definitely have some kind of uh, image or something which people come there to see them do whether it be you know, Lawrence Welk or Steve McQueen or, or you know, Howdy Doody or President Johnson you know, they all expect something mm-hmm. and uh, 
And usually they get what they expect, you know, and what they pay for. I never promised anything, you know. Uh, I used to get up on the, I used to get up on the stage when I first began playing concerts and, and not even know what I was going to do. I used to just walk in from the street in my clothes, you know. And then anything could happen. I used to talk sometimes for 20 minutes, but now it's different. Now I want to play the songs because uh, I, I actually dig them myself. It is just like Bob Dylan to do that, <laughs> to lump Howdy Doody, President Johnson, and Steve McQueen together. Um, and it's funny because he both is a serious person, but you can tell that he hates the seriousness that's placed upon his music or anybody yeah. else's, even mm-hmm. though you know that he took it seriously when he did it. But he just hates the, I don't know if it was the falseness that he saw in the attention that he got. I don't know what it was. Or the, the fakeness of his celebrity. But anyway, it kind of made him cranky sometimes. Just Like Tom Thumb's Blues um, is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs. Mm-hmm. And he describes a very specific reaction the song received in the American Southwest. It's more like I've only played one place so far where I can, where I, can I know, and it is a very powerful feeling. I was in Dallas, Texas, you know, in Austin, Texas. We played concerts down there, and we played uh, Tom Thumb's Blues called... Uh, I don't know if you're acquainted with it. Yeah. It's like uh, they they knew the feeling, what it was all about, you know, and they clapped after every verse and went wild, you know, because I mean, they really knew, they didn't know exactly maybe what it was all about, but they knew the feeling of it. They were very close to that whole Mexican color and everything down there, you know, and it, uh, it's the way things feel. Okay, so as it happens, I remember seeing Dylan play at Madison Square Garden with the band, in January of 1974. <laughs> wow. I was a young man. Uh-huh. I was very excited. And when he hit the opening line of that song, when you're lost in the rain in Juarez and it's Easter time too, I was just blown away. Right. But nothing could have prepared me for the reaction later in the song when he hit the last line of the song, which is, I'm going back to New York City. I do believe I've had enough. There we are, Madison Square Garden. Oh, man. And the crowd responded with a roar, and it was like being on the crest of a wave that just washed over the uh, arena. Right. Of course, I'd forgotten that I was in New York, so that wave hit me by surprise. (laughs) Everybody else was probably anticipating that moment, knowing the lyrics, Um, but that was a great moment. For sure. Um, Did he play that kind of rollicking, rousing version of Like a Rolling Stone? Was that the Rolling Rolling Thunder Review? No, this was Dylan and the band right. in 1974. But I think it's maybe documented on, is it After the Flood? I'm, right. I'm improvising here. And but I think I think After the Flood, he they do a version of, like an incendiary version of Like a Rolling Stone, which is one of my favorite versions of that song other than the original. Well, yeah. this show was amazing because there'd be segments with Dylan and the band, segments with just Dylan, segments of just the band, and it was, it was, the whole show was broken wow. up into like five or six parts. Excellent. Okay, on to a new Bob Dylan interview. Okay. <laughs> this one from 1964. He's having a little fun with this one. Mm-hmm. I'm an amazing gentleman. How old are you? 23. 23 years old. Yeah, between 24 and me. Yeah. yeah. A lot's happened to you in just 23 years, hasn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Are you happy about it? Oh, yeah. yeah. You ought to be because you're successful at doing, I think, what you, what you yeah. want to do more than anything else. Yeah. I don't have much to think about you don't have much to yeah. think about. I think you must be thinking about an awful lot of things to yeah. write the kind of things you do. Yeah. Tell them just for those. Oh, the microphone. All right. Tell them uh, just for those out there in the audience that might not know all of the songs you've written. Just name a few of the big ones. 
Oh, this is the composer of... Subterranean Homesick Blue. Oh, no, that ain't one of the big ones. No? No. Uh, let's see, one too many more? One it away? Yeah, just a little bit. How's that? How about blowing in the wind? Yeah. Could we blow it in the wind? You folks maybe remember the night that Judy Collins guy kept saying, you got to sing this song, you got to sing this song. Judy Collins came out one night and sang the, the full original version of Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Well, Bob yeah, wrote that. I wrote that. Yeah. that. I started writing because I didn't have anything else to do. Right. Well, thank heavens. Yes. <laughs> Here's to boredom. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you hear those interviews, and it's the same in the documentary, Don't Look Back. I mean, the interviewers look like they're like guests from the 19th century or something dealing sure. with this this court jester uh, it's just such a disconnect mm-hmm. but i never got a chance to interview him so i don't know okay so <laughs> he mentions subterranean homesick blues which maybe next to like a rolling stone is my favorite dylan song ah. right and a precursor to rap music in 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 many ways just yes. the way he kind of rhymes off and spits out those lyrics and he says that and they say no not that one we want you're one of your popular ones right and they have to feed him the titles you know and then the audience responds yes. appropriately yeah this is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Hello, Tom. Hello. What a lineup on this show. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and what an unusual combination of artists. As you, it's quite like a sort of musical stew that we do here, isn't it, on a weekly basis? Exactly. And who do we have now? We have a guy who was one of the dominant voices of the 1980s. Boy George. No. And the songs he created are instantly recognizable to this day. Pet Shop Boys. Mm, no. But, uh, but getting uh, closer. At what point are you going to get irritated with me? <laughs> that was that was ten Long episodes ago. ago yeah. <laughs> so this guy may not have been cool to many, mm-hmm. but his music has outlasted many of his much cooler contemporaries. So in this 2006 interview, Howard Jones reflects on the song's new song and what is love, and about those times. Oh, good with humor and perspective. Okay. I, I feel very fortunate that I can still sing those songs with conviction, because. It could have been that 20 years or 22 years later, you know, I, I would have disagreed with myself <laughs> about what I, was, what I was singing about. But actually, you know, new song and, and, and what is love, I can still stand by because I still agree with the philosophy that, it, that it's saying. And I wouldn't put it in exactly the same way now, but I still think that, you know, you, one has to question things and what is love is it questioning the idea of romantic love, etc. And, you know, that questioning spirit has to go on. Otherwise, we, you know, we, we, we don't move forward. Wow. You know, I think I was just the right age when What Is Love came out. There was a cynicism that I really glommed onto in that time. I was very single at the time. And, you know, <laughs> what is love anyway? Does anybody love anybody anyway? I just <clears throat> dug that. Like, it was so meaningful and powerful to me when the lyrics are really quite simple and new song was also a great song that was more of a pop song that was more just i don't remember the lyrics the lyrics that you quoted i do remember but beyond that yeah and i'm a lyricist right (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why to me they were just those big singable memorable melodies yes that's what those songs were for sure and tell me at a party that if somebody puts on that one or, you know, Don't You Want Me Baby, the people aren't going to be singing full voice. Full voice. Certain songs just endure, and these, yeah. are, these are two great examples. Yes, and I, and I know he's going to talk about a couple other uh, songs that are, that are equally as good. Here he talks about the song No One Is To Blame, 
Is he dancing around temptation and infidelity a little bit? Um, it's, it's very interesting, that song, because I, I'm still... It's one of those songs that, that has very uh, loads of meaning. Quite hard to explain. Actually, the song explains it better than you could ever say it. In, uh, but, um, you know, it, it's about, you know, having feelings for other people other, uh, that aren't your prime partner. And... Um, and that it, it, you know, and that all these sort of acknowledging the difficulties that that that, that presents, but also acknowledging that it it's not a it's not doesn't have to be a bad thing, um, and that you know it's natural, in fact, to feel affection for most people, um, and you know it's just a song that explores that difficulty, and I think that's why so many people related to it. Because they, you know, everyone's been in, in that in, in that situation where they, you know, they they have a main partner in life, but they have friends that they feel huge affection for and maybe you know strong attraction to. That's the human condition, um, and you know we have to find a way to make that work for us and everyone else. And it's a song that really sort of explores that. Oh, I'd say the answer to your question is he dancing around infidelity a little bit is uh, is a is a hard yes for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's a great song. You know, I had no idea that's that was about that, but it really gives the song even more depth. That is one of the finest ballads of the 1980s, and of course, that's Phil Collins who produced it, and Phil Collins on drums on that song. And you can hear it. I I did not realize that. <laughs> Here he goes with Johnny Carson again. <laughs> uh, yes, it's just a beautiful song, so well done, so well produced. Phil's drumming is excellent. And it's understated for Phil, anyway. Mm. Mm-hmm. The song "Things Can Only Get Better" still lasts, and Howard Jones is very proud of that. I love performing that song. I mean, because everyone knows it, and everyone shouts out the chorus because it doesn't even have any lyrics, you know. Um, and it, and it's a, you know, it still feels quite well. It feels very uplifting, you know, and and it's about not being scared of life, and it it's about. I'm encouraged, you know, to actually take things on and go for it and not be always, always so worried that it, things are going to go wrong, that you'd never, ever do anything. So it, it was one of those those songs that, you know, that was specifically designed to, to you know, I mean, I, I write these songs to myself as well, you know, to, to remind myself not to, not to be afraid and to take bold steps and to, you know, if it goes wrong, it goes wrong. You'll fix it, you know, I mean... You know, there's there's no problem. He makes a good point there, right? Because it's a song that everyone can sing along to because it doesn't have any words. It's that, oh, 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 right? That's right. But it's good, and it's so up-tempo, and it's such a happy song, and it's so optimistic. One of the things that I really like that he said earlier on is he can hear these songs and still believe in what he believed in then when he wrote those songs. And I think that there's probably a lot of artists who have big hits, or look back at some of their catalog and go, my God, who was that guy? But here he is all these years later. And I think this interview is, yeah, you said 2006. And it's more than 20 years after the fact. And he can still relate to the songs. That's great. To me, sonically, his records stand up too. But mm-hmm. they are true artifacts of the times. Absolutely. Again, you're at a party, you're in a restaurant, you're in a cab. Wherever you are, you hear that those synth sounds, like the beginnings yeah. of, of what is love. It's so era specific. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Good stuff. Howard Jones on Famous Lost Words. Let's talk about the band Devo. 
Okay. So, you know, when they first came out, I think their first album was about 78, 79, and it was the Are We Not Men, We Are Devo. Right. Do you, are you really familiar with that stuff? Well, I know the singles, and I yes. certainly know the videos. Do you know their version of the song Satisfaction by the oh, Rolling yes. Stones? Hilarious, <laughs> right? Hilarious. It's so disrespectful to the original <laughs> and when it first came out it really told you about someone as to how they reacted to that song oh, right yes. i think if they were open to it they were open to kind of new music new wave music whatever you want to call it punk post-punk whatever you want to call that but they're I can't get no satisfaction like basically played with machines by the sounds of right it. so it was so against what the original sound was and how dirty that original song was so i found it hilarious and i loved it and i love that first album album with Jocko Homo and uh, Satisfaction and yeah, 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 that first song, I can't remember what it's called, but Uncontrollable Urge, great songs, right? Your memory amazes me. And so, of course... Mine is in tatters. And most people know them from the song Whip It from 1980, right? Great song, a lot of fun, really weird video. Really weird. So, by the time we talked to them in 1981, they had peaked with Whip It, and they were kind of rebelling against people who welcomed them with open arms. It's really kind of interesting, because this album that they're talking about, New Traditionalists, is a little bit of a rebellion on their part against all that fame that they got. And the funny thing is, is that rebellion worked, because they never really had another hit single again. This New Traditionalist album had a few good songs on it, like Jerkin' Back and Forth, and a few other cool songs, cover version of Working on a Coal Mine. Which was the very Oldie Dorsey song? Yes. Oh. oh, yeah. And it's it's as respectful to that song <laughs> as it as they were to Satisfaction, okay? I don't know that one. Yeah. <laughs> this is still a fun interview. It's very short. Devo from 1981. I want to find out what the Devo definition of a new traditionalist is. Is it new button-downs, new penny loafers, or what? Oh, no. None at all. Those are old traditions. Oh, okay. What are the new ones? Well, we are still seeking them out. Devo is at least... Uh, looking, exploring. We're just tired of the old traditions, people going back for the past constantly, running for the safe safe uh, myth and, and, uh, you know, promise of things being safe and familiar and basic and uh, what we all know to be a a lie to begin with. What about? That's that's basically it. Some people could uh, think that would be pretty pessimistic. Because the, the past is so secure. It's not pessimistic at all. No? No. It's we think it's We think it's realistic. <laughs> okay. One of the nice things about having a new Devo album and a Devo concert to go to is uh, humor. I think you're one of the few bands around today who really practice their good sense, of, a, a really strong sense of humor, and it's important. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how I, w- how I would survive without a sense of humor, given the world we live in. Mm-hmm. If there's not a sense of humor about it, I think I probably would go commit suicide. You wouldn't do that on us at the concert. Not here. No, not now. Okay. no, I wouldn't. It'd make too many people happy, and I'm not going to give them that satisfaction. Do you have? Do you use effects in your shows? We certainly do. I mean, um, Devo is, is a cost-effective uh, proposition. <laughs> you get more for your money. We, we are still using film. Oh, yeah? And we, yeah, we use uh, slides as well. We use various kinds of uh, uh, lighting that we've designed, you know, lighting that you probably wouldn't see anywhere else and so on, and a lot of uh, human theatrics. Great. Still human-centered. 
And costumes? Do you have to go through costume changes or just... Why, sir, we have no costumes. Oh. <laughs> Only work clothes. <laughs> but we do change our work clothes halfway through. Alan, from where you sit on stage, um, do you see audiences... Uh, differ from city to city or are they are they the same all over America or oh no they Canada? differ they differ greatly they uh, in keeping with the local character of the different cities in Columbus for example we had the extremely white and reticent uh, reaction how about in uh, say Detroit in Detroit you get a real gut level you know laid off auto worker type of reaction mm -hmm. And Chicago also is a... Chicago, it looked like Island of the Lost Souls. That's right. Sometimes you look <laughs> down the audience and it looks like hell. Puking it looks pit. like Dante's Inferno. Yeah, really? Like, yeah, it looked In like Chicago? about the fifth level. Yeah, it looked like a big giant puking pit. Everybody <laughs> looked really sick, like they'd just come off of chemotherapy treatments. And they were, they were, many were sick and there was just beer and barf on the floor and people are doing uh, various kinds of downers and, you know, it's, they, they really looked like... Uh, Island of Lost Souls. How about but not that that was any less positive of a response than, say, the one that I described in Columbus. <laughs> no, in fact, I liked it a lot better. Yeah, me too. <laughs> How about uh, com uh, comparing those audiences to, say, a Toronto audience? Toronto audiences have always been, you know, very cool, you mm -hmm. know, very hip. Why do, you, why do you think that is? I think they live in a, in a nice place, I mean, without being, uh, you know... Patronizing? They're patronizing, yeah. Right, better health care, better food, nicer buildings, a little more education. <laughs> better beer. Better beer. <laughs> That's right. The inner sleeve on, on your new album, The New Traditionalists, I think is a riot. You can order all these neat things, glasses, clothing, uh, all kinds of Devo memorabilia. Yeah, we, we were more or less forced into the mail order business because we would design these things for our own purposes to use live and for our own edification. And so many people live off of novelties and junk that they were they were demanding them and um, we're, we're making them available because bootleggers made inferior versions so available at exorbitant prices and the whole mob mobster hall scene in the United States is so dangerous I mean you know the charging exorbitant prices and 40% markup when they when they put merchandise in a hall where now we give uh, people who like Devo the alternative of being able to come uh, through a mail order situation and get those same things at an equitable rate. So there you go, Devo from the early 80s. Now let's talk about them a little bit. They didn't consider themselves so much a band as performance art. And as you know, performance art is sometimes a really confrontational and confounding type of thing. So those guys actually went to Kent State University. And Kent State is where the shootings happened against protesters of the Vietnam War. And that was a big sea change in how people viewed those students and the protesters, but it also had a profound effect on the protesters. So there's these guys from Devo who would like to rebel against something like that, but they realize that kind of rebellion is the kind that gets them killed. So how are they going to rebel against society? They decide, this is Mark Mothersbaugh talking, they decide that the most influential people in our society are the Madison Avenue advertising guys, the Mad Men, Madison Men. So they decide to kind of replicate their influence on society in this phony Madison Avenue kind of way. So that's how they create their personae in the band. 
So they play local bars, and they're dressed up in really weird hair. They've got plastic faces on. They've got plastic hair on. They've got these weird plastic outfits on, and people hate them. They start yelling at them. The guys in Devo are yelling back. Now, that's not the Devo that kind of we know and love, but that's the original Devo. So they've got this kind of confrontational attitude when they're playing, and literally the bar owners would walk up to them and say, guys, you got to stop this. Here's $75. Stop playing and get out of here. So that's how they got started. There there's, you go. There's some wacky dudes, aren't they? They are. <laughs> you know, I know that every time they showed up at the station, they were dressed up in something else. And it looked like they had potted plants on their head one, one day when yeah. they showed up. So when they say to the interviewer, uh, we're not wearing costumes, sir, right? When they <laughs> act faux uh, yeah. offended by that, you know that they've got something on, including <laughs> probably their black plastic hair. <laughs> Right. right. So they had a real style, and I really do like those guys. Mark Mothersbaugh is a phenomenal musician. And film and, composer. Right, and film composer. Now, what he's done some stuff recently. Do you know offhand of the movies that he's done? I'd have to check his credits, but they are, they are lengthy. Right, and he is extremely talented. Anyway, Devo from 1981. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. And Christopher, I am so excited we have a special guest. And one of the reasons why we have a special guest is on episode three, we played a great clip of a young reporter ambushing a most famous rock star after one of their concerts. Details to follow. That's right. So (laughs) let's play this clip. First of all, let's welcome Jeannie Becker onto our show. Yay, Jeannie. Yay. Becker, journalist, author, <laughs> entrepreneur, whatever, and friend. Whatever. And so friend. <laughs> I want to play this clip of you backstage. It's about two minutes long. Uh, you backstage talking to Rod Stewart at an after party after one of his concerts. And then you're going to give us the context of this afterwards. Let's have a listen to it. Listen, I want you to tell me how you stay in such great shape, Rod Stewart. Well, it's um, a question everybody asks me. I don't smoke, but it's got something to do with it. Go on, what else don't you do? Well, I don't drink that much, and I speak to my mother every week. Do you play any soccer or just watch? No, I only go in for indoor sports. I go to church on Sundays. Uh, I wear underpants. Um, (laughs) Oh, I get the scene. What color? Well, they're usually a chewing gum gray because we can't afford to launder them. Okay. How do you feel when you're out there uh, prancing around? I mean, what is it that the audience does for you? Enthusiasm. That is the key to rock and roll. It's enthusiasm. Once one's enthusiasm disappears, one should go home to bed. (laughs) The way you perform with your bed... Oh, there's somebody under the table. Wild and crazy times. The way you perform with your uh, band, you're you're so uh, liberal. You never upstage them. You're so confident about your own thing. Is that conscious? Well, that's good. It's nice to hear somebody say that, really, because I'm very proud of them. Oh, oh my man! Mr. Stewart, thanks so much. I just uh, thought I'd say thank you. The ladies summed it up, the natural approach. (laughs) That's the approach you take. Who shot the president? Oh, Oh, champagne is popping all over the place. It's going all down my trout. Funny, all over your legs. Okay, we better... uh, It was very nice meeting you. Yes, thanks so much. It was a pleasure. So, Jeannie Becker... How do you feel when you hear that audio of you backstage with Rod Stewart? I, you know, that was 40 years ago. That was 40 years ago. So how do I feel? 
when I hear myself in those glamorous, frightening uh, trenches <laughs> uh, being as uh, aggressive or, or at least, uh, you know, being able to kind of, you know, hold my own with someone like Rod Stewart, I'm very proud of myself <laughs> yes. because I was quite the virgin back in the day. Well, I mean quite a virgin of a certain sort, a, a rock star interviewing virgin. What is going on that we can't hear in the pure audio? <laughs> well, what is going on is Rod Stewart is sitting in the back of uh, some kind of club on Yorkville um, Avenue, uh, and there's a big long table to set a private party after his concert, I guess it was at Maple Leaf Gardens, mm-hmm. and I had just got a job with 1050 Chum, which was the, you know, top 40 a.m. station at the time, the station that I grew up listening to yeah, under me, the covers. Me, you know, this, me too. This me was too. like a big deal for me. Yeah. I had just come from St. John's, Newfoundland, where I paid my dues in, uh, at CBC Radio. But, you know, this was the big time. And I needed to prove myself. I thought, if I could get an interview with Rod Stewart, like the big boys at Chum would really have respect for me. So somehow... <laughs> I weaseled my way into this party because I heard that there was this uh, after party going on. And I walked in with my little tape recorder. Even that Mm -hmm. sounds so antiquated. And I saw that at the back of the room there was this brouhaha going on. All these chicks were like crawling all over Rod Stewart at this back table. I kid you not, they were sitting in his lap. They were under the table. They were who knows what was going on. And I just made a beeline for Rod and the table, and I turned my microphone on, you know, turned my tape recorder on, I should say, and I stuck my microphone boldly in his face and just started chatting him up. And uh, and that was it. I mean, I, I'm incredulous now that I had the nerve, of the chutzpah, as we call it, to do such a thing. Um, but I felt as though my life depended on it, and I had to bring back this valuable piece of tape. And it was like, wow, I had transcended the you know that kind of the depths of you know being the low you know being the wannabe reporter on the poll like you know who Mm -hmm. the hell is this chick where'd she come from what you know what she know what she doesn't know what she's talking about to like wow you know i suddenly was a diva you know had everyone's (laughs) respect like all the guys finally you know believed that you know there wasn't anything i couldn't do and uh and that just really set me on the course of for the next 40 years of my journey wow yeah. I love that story, and thank you for putting that in a context for us. You know, when I was uh, working on the book about Much Music Is This Live, and I spoke with you, I think we had breakfast at Taroni, and a lovely conversation. Um, you were talking about the early days of doing rock star interviews, and I think we both agreed that there was a sea change, because prior to the time when we came into the business, and you came before me... Um, it was a much more innocent approach. It was very superficial, and we became more music journalists. Do you know when that sort of transition really began to happen? I don't know, because I have to tell you, I never really thought of myself as a music journalist, at least not with, uh, with a capital J. I mean, when I started really interviewing rock stars, uh, you know, uh, actively, 
uh, because I did bits and pieces of it for sure at, at Chum Radio, but uh, Chum Radio bought City TV, and in 1979, uh, they decided to take J.D. Roberts, who was the boss jock on uh, <laughs> 1050 Chum at the time, you now is John Roberts of Fox News, excuse right. me, and me, the good news girl, you know, they decided to take the two of us over to the TV side of things. Right. And that's when we were really thrown headlong into this world of uh, serious, if you can call it that, interviewing. But having having the time and, and having the uh, the opportunity to really sit down with these rock stars and, and visit them in their hotel rooms and go into the studios with them and hang out backstage with them and ride the smoky tour buses with them yeah. and really, you know, converse with these people. But I, you know, I have to admit, I was like... I don't want to call myself a groupie because a groupie was the you know the chick yeah. that had sex with the guys in the band. But I was that kind of a fan. Like I just wow, I was hanging out with these guys that I adored. A lot of them that I had grown up listening to. Right. And I was you know ha- because I had the power of a TV camera over my shoulder. You know I that you got was, the I, access. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah it, it was. was incredible. And I didn't have a really strong background in music other than having grown up in the 60s and, and 70s and absolutely loving music. But, you know, that was all I knew. I, mean, I was like, you know, a, a theater person. I had come from, you know, studying acting and stagecraft and mime, for God's sake. So what I didn't really, I was just a fan. Half the people may have really liked me, but I'm, half the people or more absolutely hated me. Like, who the hell is this chick? What does she know? You, she doesn't. You did you have know. to grow up in public, didn't you? Oh, oh, it was so brutal. But I was determined to hang in there and do what I did because I loved it so much and because I did know that there were a lot of people that did resonate with. And now, with the benefit of time, I'm sure you know what an impact your work made and how enduring it is. I managed to keep my feet on the ground, and I think that's what people appreciated. You know, about me, I was a real person in an unreal world, and that, of course, continued to my years with fashion television. Well, I I have to ask, because you transitioned from one world of crazy people and egos run rampant into another one, and I remember at the time... You said, well, I felt I had to make a change in my career and in my life because I couldn't do one more Rod Stewart interview. <laughs> I'm sorry, I used Rod Stewart as the example. <laughs> That's funny. Just because he was the first one that I interviewed. Yeah. And then I interviewed him countless times, you know, after that initial uh, interview that we just Can heard. you compare and contrast the two worlds of rock and roll and fashion? Is oh, it, is, uh, they are, for me, it's... Um, the comparisons, uh, it, really, how they are so similar, that's what made me fall in love with both of them. You know, th- I thought, you know, okay, what could be a better arena than rock and roll, though? You know, I covered it for so long, and I was looking for the next big thing, and what about <gasps> fashion? That's where the egos are bigger. You know what's been fun for, for Tom and I is going through this archive of interviews, which goes back, you know, 50 or 60 years, is to see the phenomenon of the teen idol as it goes, I mean, literally from, you know, Elvis and then through... Rick Nelson. Rick Nelson, mm-hmm. the Bay City Rollers, um, you know, right up to Bieber and Sean Mendez. I mean, what was for you the moment, or Duran even, where you came into full 
contact with that kind of hormonal phenomenon and and how how did how are you how did you react to it you mean my first the, the awareness that i actually had a teen idol my first well, idol and then I, i'm happy to hear that one as well to meet him yeah, and talk to him and get kind of friendly with him hey i have lived the most phenomenal life i mean i was 12 years old and the beatles came to town and they were playing um, Maple Leaf Gardens, sitting up in the nosebleed section, of yeah. course, the grace. You know, the Beatles were like raisins on the stage. <laughs> but I had made up my mind, like, Paul was my, you know, I was Tiger Beat magazine, 16 magazine. I poured over those magazines. I was in love with Paul McCartney. I had posters of him all over my bedroom, you know, like unfreaking believable how much I love this guy. I was sure I was going to somehow one day get the chance to marry him. Fast forward to all these years later, and I'm working, you know, at much music. Yeah, it was probably much music. I got a chance to go to the Plaza Hotel to interview Paul McCartney. Mm. And it was like, ah, and that guy is so freaking media savvy, of course, of course, of course. We've talked about this. Christopher has mentioned it on a couple of occasions, how he sets you at ease. I walked into that room, so he must have known, okay, the next person coming to visit you, because it was one of those junkets, is Jeannie Becker from Toronto, you know, and she's, maybe they even knew approximately how old I was, or maybe when I walked into the room, he figured out how old I was. And I said, oh, I'm so thrilled to meet you. And he looked at me and he goes, I remember you, Maple Leaf Gardens, you were screaming your head off. He actually said that. Like, he oh went, my God. Like, and it was like, yeah, man, he heard me. I couldn't believe it. And anyway, so I fell madly, 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 madly in love. And then with you him had to do an interview. Again. And then I had to do an interview. I think you should co host all of our future shows. <laughs> I just feel like your insights and your experiences and just the richness of the way that you have lived your life and conducted your career. Respect, Jeannie Becker. Back at you, Christopher. That's it for Famous Lost Words for this week. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, executive producer, Rob Farina. I'm Tom Jokic. Don't forget, you can get caught up with past episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app and on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>